You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. You're listening to The Noble and Roosh Show, brought to you by Ball Is Life and Dash Radio. Welcome back to another episode of The Noble and Roosh Show by Ball Is Life. I'm your host, Roosh Williams, with my co-host, Zach Noble. And today we're joined by NBA champion uh, from across the world at the moment, Andrew Bogut. Andrew, how are you doing? And what time is it where you're at? It's 2 p.m. here in the afternoon, as you can see, the light behind me, but I'm um, doing well. How are you guys? Doing awesome. Really envious of uh, you and the Gold Coast there, just uh, sharing that I've spent a good amount of time there. And what, uh, what's it like being retired these first couple of weeks, Andrew? I mean, you made a big decision here recently. Yeah, it's been um, pretty busy, actually. I'm doing a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, as you guys know, I just launched my own podcast at Rogue Bogues on all the social media channels. I'll give that a quick plug and, and on all good uh, podcast platforms. But So that's been pretty cool to do. I've kind of got a few different formats there to relive my career and kind of reminisce about things. And um, that's been good. So that's taken some time and then just spending some more time at home with the kids and playing a fair bit of poker actually too. So um, online with some friends and that's kind of my day at the moment. Okay, what have you hit big on poker yet? You've been playing poker a while, or what? I'm doing all right. You know, <laughs> good gambling never talks about wins and losses, but I'm I'm in the plus, and that's all that matters. Um, uh, but absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a I love playing poker. Um, big passion of mine, and yeah, I've, I've thankfully networked with a good group of friends that are um, as addicted to it as I am. So that's a good thing. Will we be seeing any appearances on the World Series of Poker anytime soon? If the world ever opens up, yeah. Um, but the, the Aussie Millions is supposed to be in, what, January? I don't think that's going ahead. The World Series, um, who knows where, where that goes. It's supposed to happen. I think they're supposed to be doing it pretty soon, actually. Um, and then next year, who knows where that goes. I'd love to be involved one day. But uh, right now, with everything in the world, I think it's online at the moment only. How, uh, how is Australia? Um, we, we are ignorant Americans. Um, but I just want to check in on how things are, you know, on the other side of the world. Oh, we compared to you guys, we're doing very well. Um, we're, uh, I don't know what the number is today. I didn't check it, but we're at, we're at 50 cases countrywide as of a couple of days ago. So 50, five, five zero. zero, five zero. Yeah. So it's not, you know, we, we just had a cluster, um, <laughs> more than Sydney and they're going bonkers. Like they, they want to close borders to other States, which is ridiculous in my opinion, but yeah, we're only at we're under a hundred for sure. I think we only have one person in um, ICU in the whole country. Holy shit! So we've handled it pretty well for the most part, but um, we're unique in a way where we're a smaller country and we're kind of isolated from the rest of the world. We're not landlocked with anyone, so we can kind of shut down borders. Um, although they are they're opening international borders again, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we don't run into the same problem because I don't know if you guys were aware, but my home city of Melbourne. Uh, Victoria, we had the harshest, harshest lockdowns in the world for about 
I mean, it was three to four months of, of hell for, for people down there. Um, couldn't go outside after 9, 9 p.m., couldn't leave your house kind of thing, and it was, um, it was pretty bad. So everything, we're talking everything shut down? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. It, was, it went through ebbs and flows in different stages, but they had, um, everything was work from home. Restaurants were all closed. Um, it was, you were allowed out for one hour of exercise a day outside of your house. Which means it's a call if you're going outside by yourself. I don't see how you're spreading the virus, but that's a whole other conversation for another podcast. Um, Man, I got, I got, I got two dogs. If I could only go out for one hour a day, I don't know. I don't know oh, how yeah. I it was. I got friends and friends with toddlers and friends with pets, and it, it's just think about one hour, and you're like, wow, like it's not, it's not a lot of time. Um, so so are police monitoring that, or like, yeah, yeah, it was full on. Like you, people were getting arrested for it. Um, people were getting arrested if they were outside without a valid reason. Then they put a they put a um, kilometer lockdown. You had a kilometer radius from your house, so I think it was five kilometers or ten kilometers. So if you were found, you know, the other side of town, they took your license and your address on the spot fine. And the fines weren't small; they were they were massive fines, fifteen hundred dollars in some cases. And they lifted it to five grand. It was it was crazy. Um, but the governments they love to to you know wheel their hand with power, and they have an opportunity and. Some would argue it's worked out well because we're at low cases, but I think it went a bit far, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd, I'd say. I mean, there'd be a civil war here. I mean, an ultimate, like, breakdown and all on onslaught. I mean, there's 50 cases in my family, though. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you, you guys, guns are legal in your country. So that's a difference. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great, valid point there, too. So. No, no, not condoning it, but if there ever was a chance for it. A civil war here. I think the citizens are in trouble. <laughs> Economically, though, um, that ha- you guys have to be struggling a little bit in that case, right? Or how are you oh, guys doing bad. there? It's bad. The government's uh, the government's in mass debt. They're just handing out payments to people during this pandemic to keep people afloat. But I know I'm. I mean, I own a, I own a few properties in Melbourne that um, cafes run out of that are my tenants and. You know, they're in all sorts. Um, right now it's okay because the government's throwing a bunch of money everywhere. But my concern is once this all dries up, once the government grants dry up, um, early, mid next year, uh, we're going to see some, we're going to see a bloodbath. I hope it doesn't happen. I don't want it to happen, but I just can't see this, this amount of debt sustaining um, as a positive. Well, man, that's a lot. I appreciate yeah. you sharing that though. That's really that's interesting. interesting. Like I said, we're just ignorant Americans over here arguing about I don't know, people wearing masks and stuff and nobody can get along. But, but on a more positive note, um, I wanted to ask you, man, I know that guys like yourself that come from different countries and make it to the NBA stage and then, you know, succeed at the highest level. Uh, I think you were NCAA player of the year, if I remember correctly, back in, I think, 06 or 05. Um, yep. NBA champion, you know, I know you're revered by your home country. I just kind of want to ask, get some insight on like, what's that like? Like I'm from Iran, right? And I know that, I mean, I'm from America, but my family's from Iran. And I know like, for example, when an Iranian soccer player makes it on like the, the big stage in the English Premier League, like that person is cemented as like a legend for life, right? So I just kind of want some insight on like, when you go home, um, you know, you're, you're the biggest basketball figure in Australian history. Like, what's that like? It's a little different in Australia, though. The, the thing with Australia is we have our own um, our own cultural sports, similar to you guys with baseball and um, American football or NFL. We have the, the Australian rules football and, and rugby league, NRL, and then cricket. They're kind of the, the big-time guys in Australia. Um, 
So basketball, especially when I came through, it was sixth, seventh, eighth most popular sport in Australia. Very good participation rates from the junior level, but the program was never really supported. Um, the NBA was hard to get. You know, league pass wasn't what it was today. So when I got drafted, people didn't – they knew it was a big deal, but they didn't really understand, you know, how big of a deal it was going number one. Um, whereas today with social media and all that, it's if it happened today, it'd be a whole different story. So – I kind of snuck under the radar a little bit, which was a good thing as well. Um, but people know, but it's, I don't think in 2005 when I got drafted, people just had no idea what kind of what accolade that was. Um, but people, don't get me wrong, were very proud and basketball fans themselves in Australia, you know, were very, very proud and vocal about it. I mean, do you think that you're responsible in a lot of ways for Australia kind of becoming as big as it is? I'm sorry, basketball becoming as big as it has become in Australia and guys like Dante Exum and Joe Ingles making the league? Yeah, Ben Simmons. I mean, there's a, a, yeah. look, I think, I think Luke Longley is the original gangster. He's, he's, uh-huh. he's the, he was by himself in that league, the longest tenured NBA player at that point that actually stuck. We had a few guys coming in and out, but he was the, the guy. Um, so I only have one guy for 20-odd years that stuck. It's something that you didn't think – when you were my age, you didn't think it was achievable. Like, for me, it was like, all right, I'll play in, playing in the Australian League professionally would have been great for me. I would have been happy with that. <laughs> um, I ended up getting further and further. And I think I definitely was part of that journey. I think Luke and then myself, I think I pioneered that, you know, going number one was like, okay, I can do it from Australia. I can get drafted number one. I can go number five. I can go in the first round. And I think a lot of kids then really believed that they could do it. Um, and our junior, our junior system here and our development is, is world-class. It just, for some reason in the nineties and two thousands, it never translated into the professional game for some reason. It just, it, it, it fizzled out along the way and ran out of steam. Whereas now we're seeing that translation and you're getting, you know, like you said, Joe Ingles, Ben Simmons, Patty Mills, Dante Exum, Tom Maker, um, Delva Dover, like it's, it's endless. And to have, I think we've got a more digit amount of guys in the league from Australia that's unheard of um, for a country of 25 million people. And we're really batting above our weight. And a big concern for me, though, on the flip side is can we, can we sustain that and keep that, that going? You know, hopefully we don't get, ever get to a stage where there's only one Australian in the NBA. I mean, you guys have progressed year after year, and it's, it's been amazing. Yeah, it's like how long can this go on for? You guys are on a hell of a run. Yeah. Uh, did Luke Longley work with you growing up, or did you have a mentor at all? Or um, player you uh, looked up to? I didn't, I didn't know Luke till later on in my career once I was halfway through my NBA career. He gotcha. kind of stepped away from basketball completely kind of after the Bulls thing. And once he retired, he kind of he, – he's, he's, he lives on a remote, in a remote part of Australia. He's one of those dudes that just has his property on the beach and doesn't, doesn't really do too much media and all that. So he just literally disappeared for a bunch of years. Um, so he's for the record, I was going to say for the record, that's the way to do it. The way Luke yeah. Longley did it. That's the right way to do it. <laughs> but then he's got he's to drive five hours to get to the nearest airport or city. So he's, <laughs> he's literally remote. Like he's, he's, he's out there. So He's in a um, bunker, we like to call it. But he worked with our national team the last two or three campaigns. So I, I came real close to him and respected his journey and his opinion. And he's, he's a straight shooter like myself, so we got along well. Um, but as far as a mentor for me, there wasn't really one person. I, I think there was a a bunch of different people along my journey that I took bits and pieces from. Like you, you take the positives from, from people and you try to forget the negatives. And I did that from a bunch of different people and it, you know, all, all bottled up into, it's a, you know, what eventuated me being an NBA player. So as you're discussing it, I mean, it sounds like you guys are getting closer as a country, as 
the talent has gotten better. I mean, is it a brotherhood or are you guys just acquaintances, would you say? Oh, for the most part, it is like a core group of, um, you know, Patty Mills, myself, Deli, Aaron Baines, Joe Ingles. Those are kind of the core NBA guys that we, and Deli, obviously, we had that are kind of really bought into what the Australian Boomers and the national team is about um, because we really enjoy playing for our national team. Dante's been hurt a little bit. We're trying to get Ben Simmons to buy into, into that national team kind of mindset because it's a little bit different from professional. And he's a young guy. He's still figuring things out, but we want him to try and come on board because he's obviously the best Australian in, in the world right now. Um, so we'd love to have him on board and put on a um, green and gold jersey. But um, yeah, we're pretty close for the most part. And it's, you know, if I go visit when I was in the league and playing Utah or Cleveland, I'd, I'd have dinner with Delhi or Joey or whoever it was the night before a game. We catch up before a game and um, it's a pretty, pretty close relationship. So I was going to ask, um, as a Rockets fan, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with a young guy named Jay Sean Tate and yep. a coach named Will Weaver. And I was just going to ask for some insight if you had a chance to maybe see their development or see any of their games um, in the league or anything you could speak on in terms of what they bring to the league. I've been really excited to see, you know, the potential that they have. And I know they had a lot of success in Australia. So, Well, I saw all their games because I don't know if you know, but Will Weaver coached me and Jay Sean Tate was my teammate. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I didn't see tweet. Was that last season? Yeah, the last season. Okay, so, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's all right. I've worked with Will. He was our assistant with the national team the last three campaigns. So that's how, when I came on with the Kings, um, we moved on from our, our head coach um, last season before, in the off season. And Will Weaver was a guy I put forward to, to interview for the job and he ended up getting it. So he did a fantastic job. He's a huge, he's huge into numbers and analy analytics and that's kind of the way the game's going. I think he has um, a really good temperament for today's athlete. You know, he's not a rah-rah coach. He's not a yell-on-screen coach. He understands uh, relationships. Look, the NBA, I don't know how long you guys have followed it, but it's, it's become more about people management and ego management than it has about X's and O's. X's and O's are still very important, but it, I think it's almost gone 30 40% X's and O's because if you have a good assistant or two, you'll, you'll do fine with X's and O's. So that 60 70% is your day-to-day -day management of this guy needs a hug. This guy needs you know, more hugs. This guy needs to <laughs> leave him the hell alone. And that's the way the league's becoming now. And Will's real good at that. Um, and then Jay Sean Tate, I loved him. Undersized guy on paper, height-wise. Reminded me a little bit of Draymond Green in that sense, where he plays much bigger than his size. And he's not afraid to mix it up. He's... Probably more suited to the four spot, obviously, um, even though he's only 6'4", 6'5", on the best day. But long, athletic, strong. I mean, I saw him backing down guys that were seven foot in our league, you know, that was strong and because he's, he's just a strong football player type and just a great young kid. And his journey's phenomenal. He was playing in, like, Belgium or, you know, he was playing in, like, some small league you never would even know. leagues, yeah. We took a flyer on him and, and we got him pretty cheap for an import and said, you know, we, we caught Ohio State. Um, and found out that he was a great kid. He was their team captain. He let all their hustle stats. We're like, done, perfect. Um, and so we got him, and I can't say a bad word about him. Great teammate, awesome kid. Couldn't be happier for him, and I, I hope – I mean, he should make that roster. He's, he's, he's got the motor. Even if he's not playing minutes, he'll, he'll practice hard, and he'll be a good locker room guy. So I hope he, um, hope he gets – I think he might, maybe even sign him to a three-year non-guarantee. 
They did. I, I think they. Uh, I think they took some of the mid level out to sign him. Um, I think. I think he has to meet certain thresholds to guarantee it. But I'm pretty sure. I mean, Stephen Silas has been raving about him, and he's had a pretty good preseason. So I would be surprised if they don't, you know, integrate him into the roster. So yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, especially in their system with the small ball. I mean, he can play. He can play stretches at the five, even though he's undersized. You know, um, he can play a few minutes there if he needs to. And you know, his thrust and athleticism up the court. Um, and his three-point shot really improved. You know, he wasn't – he didn't come into our league known as a shooter, but he shot at mid-30s for us. Um, and, you know, he really knocked down some big shots for us. Yeah, he goes from 50,000 to 500,000 if he plays opening night. So prayers for him. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's that's a big, big jump. But I think the kid's got talent. I've watched the preseason games. I think he should be on a roster regardless. But I want to hear from your side of things because you've – seen Draymond Green with Clutch Sports. The NBA, you mentioned it's becoming more of a hugging league. Yes, it's becoming more of a relationship league because of that. Therefore, some guys with talent get left on the outside um, or they get kicked out of the league quicker than they should have because maybe they're not as well connected, you can say. They don't, they don't have that clutch sports relationship. And I've seen guys get tryouts. I've seen guys get drafted higher due to relationships. Do you think that Weaver relationship had a lot to do with Tate getting to Houston? Not saying he doesn't deserve to be there, but do you think that relationship was a huge part of that? I think it was to an extent getting him to Houston, but I can tell you for a fact that um, Jay Sean had a 10-day with, with Golden State on the table before the pandemic hit. So – after our season, right after yeah. our season, ended in, uh, we ended in March and he was, I was getting calls from Golden State about him and they were going to give him a chance for a 10-day and then try to sign him for the rest of the season. So he had deals on the table. He was going to the NBA regardless. Whether it was summer league, a 10-day, he was going to be there. Um, Will obviously helped that. And I think Will, as far as judging talent and more so judging people, I think his words pretty well trusted. You know, he almost got the OKC job. Um, he was down to the last two candidates, I yep. believe. So he's, he's right there. And he's, he's probably the guy that's, you know, a, a year or two or three away from getting a head coaching job. You know, I, I, feel, I really feel he'll be the next, the next highly touted assistant. You know, he knows, his, he knows his stuff and he does a great job. But to answer your question quickly, yeah, I'm sure Will played a part in it. But I don't think that that changes the fact of Jay Shaw getting a job somewhere else. Can you speak on anything um, in terms of Will Weaver's defensive philosophy? Because I've been most excited to see what I've heard um, is that his, his focus within the Rockets staff is supposed to be on defense, I think. Um, and I was just wondering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what Rockets fans have been saying, uh, but I don't know much, so I'm Yo, asking. It's a big job in Houston, coaching defense. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, and that's why I'm interested, right? Because <laughs> they, yeah. they need some fixes on that end, for sure. I mean, they did, they did a great job when we played them just in the last run with Golden State because they switch everything and they junk the game up that way. But you just can't do that for 48 minutes and expect to, to have success defensively. You've got to have some sort of backbone or core. Um, he, Will, likes to obviously have a big that can protect the basket. We try to pick on guys at times. So we, we might um, – someone that's in their starting unit or it's on the court at the time that we don't think is a good three-point shooter – whether it's a two-man, three-man, four-man, whatever it is, we might do some, some things where we literally stand that guy under the basket in the paint that's guarding that guy um, and make it like an FU shoot it. And he'll, he'll look at the numbers and be like, I'd rather have this guy shooting 
five wide open threes and then James shooting seven contested threes. And that's a gamble he'll take. He'll back himself doing that. And that's where his analytics and the research that he does comes in. And the thing I like about Will is he'll think outside the box. So we, um, we, we played a triangle in two in the grand final series here in Australia. It was something that we didn't run all, we didn't, we didn't do it all year in a game. He had taught it maybe for five or 10 minutes a week during the regular season and just said, hey, we're going to keep this in our back pocket for a rainy day. We might not ever use it, but let's just work on it a little bit. You know, spent a whole lot of time, but 10 minutes a week over the course of the season adds up. And we, we won game two of the grand final series doing it. We came out in a triangle and Sue and, and the team that we were playing had no idea what the hell was going on <laughs> because it was so random. Wow. Um, but Will's, I respect that. He's not, he's a, he's a guy that's happy to roll the dice on some stuff and be like, hey, Let's just try this and see what happens. If it doesn't work, I look like an idiot, so be it. And I respect coaches like that. I'm sure, the, I'm sure Rockets fans will rejoice hearing that because Houston has long had a coach that does not make adjustments, and it sounds like Will Weaver is not scared of adjustments, but that's awesome. Yep. Uh, I think you have to be that way these days. I think the game's all about adjustments. It's all about in-game tweaks. And, and sometimes I was part of the Warriors run, our, our first championship. We played Memphis in the second round. I don't know if you guys remember that series. We're, oh, yeah. we're down, we're oh, down yeah. 2 1 in Memphis for game four, down 2 1. And Tony Allen was causing problems for us. He was playing really good D against uh, Clay. And Steve Kerr came to me and said, Bose, I'm, I'm starting you on Tony Allen, and I don't want you to leave the paint. <laughs> I didn't. And, um, you know, Tony wasn't a great shooter at the time. He did so many things well for them that didn't show up on a stat sheet, but we knew. He wasn't a great three-point shooter, and he knocked down the first three of the game, I think. And I was standing in the paint, and that was the best thing ever because he shot the next three or four. <laughs> and it, it basically hurt their spacing on offense for Zebo and, and Mark in there where we just cramped that up. And that's those kind of things can win you a playoff series or a championship. We ended up winning game four and then won the next two, won, won four, two, and went on to the finals. So it's an interesting story. So speaking of that year, uh, don't mean to bring up bad memories, but – 2016, you guys win if you play. (laughs) I don't like going back in history. (laughs) You don't know. Um, I think momentum is a crazy thing in those seven-game series. And, yeah, first of all, I want to give credit to Cleveland and say they stole momentum. And the fear was then, you know, went from 3-2 to 3-3, and they saw fear in our eyes and stole it. Um, they, They did a great job. But... The Draymond thing hurt us because he was our, one of our best defenders, perimeter inside. And then I think with me going out of the lineup, um, I was playing about 2025. 20, I was having a pretty good final series. Sure. Huge. I think, I think it was more just outside of – I had some high scoring games for me and some good rebounding games, but it was more that, that rim protection presence that you need when LeBron's out there. And I think the first four games when LeBron turned that corner, I was there. I was either trying to take a charge, I was trying to hit him, foul him, foul the shit out of him, or I was trying to block his shot. And I blocked a few of them, and then he started looking for me and wasn't as aggressive getting to the rim. And I think, you know, not having me in there, even if it's 20 minutes a game, I think game six and seven, he was just he was getting the pain at will and, and distributing, and then their shooters got hot. And in hindsight, maybe it would have, would, have, would have changed things, but our momentum was so messed up after that game, game five of, you know, just with everything going on, the dream on suspension that we were trying to find our feet again and get our rhythm back. And we couldn't do it in two games and they, they, they won it. You don't yeah. have to say it. I will. You guys would have won. Yeah. I, I yeah. tell everybody this. Yeah. You I mean, did. everyone, 
everyone talks about the Draymond suspension, but I always talk like it was clear as soon as you went down. I mean, it's as simple as like you said, paint protection. You plugged it up enough, um, enough that you can with LeBron to the point where it was a huge advantage. And when you were not there, I think it was Azili was your backup, Festus. Um, he just couldn't. It just wasn't the same when Azili, you know. Yeah, I mean, he battled for the most part, but he he was a 10, 10 minute player for us. All of a sudden, was asked to play twenty twenty five. And then our small ball lineup was out of whack because the rhythm of that was gone. So, you know, like I said, we just couldn't recover um, as far as all that went. And it was, you know, it was just all over the place. We just couldn't get a rhythm. And then Cleveland obviously did a fantastic job. They went, they started going to a one through five switch, which you give a guy like Kevin Love credit. And he's spoken about it before. If someone would have told you, you know, Kevin Love switching on Steph, we'd take that any day of the week, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in that pivotal game seven, he did a phenomenal job of, of staying in front of Steph and, and running him off the three. And, and he took that away a few times and then our confidence lacked and we could have scored in that game. So you can play, you go for it. I was going to say, keeping on that same timeline, um, well, a year back when you, when you guys did win it all, what are some of your favorite memories or any stories like the one you shared about Steve Kerr in, uh, in the second round? What are some of your favorite memories from that run that you, you know, to share? I think just the off-court relationship we had. Um, the NBA, I'd, I'd, I'll gamble. I'll, I'll say 25, 26 out of 30 teams don't, do, don't go to dinners together oftenly. They don't hang out a lot off the court. And that's why they're either losing teams or they're not successful. I can guarantee it. Um, I've been on those losing teams. We were one of the few teams where every road trip, I've spoken about this plenty of times, we'd have a minimum of seven or eight guys at every team, every dinner. It wasn't mandatory. It was like, hey, we're going to dinner. And I think myself, Harrison, and I can't remember who else first started it early in the season. Like, hey, we all have to eat anyway, right? Let's do it together. And it was two or three guys and it turned into five or six, then six or seven. And then all of a sudden, every road trip, it was like, you know, eight or nine guys. Um, and, you know, some, some cities you go to, a player might have family from there or whatever, you know, where they might not be able to come to dinner, which is fine. But, you know, nine times out of ten, we had, we had big numbers at our dinners and people think that's silly, but, you know, you build camaraderie and relationships away from the court. It's kind of hard to get to know a person while you're doing layout lines or get to know a person while you're winning and losing. And I might get into a Draymond and then I... I hate him for a couple of days or he hates me and we're kind of teetering on, on going to blows, but then you go to a dinner and it's like, Hey man, he's the same as me. He kind of grew up in a similar situation I did or, or whatever it is. And, and that was the most beautiful thing with that team. And it was kind of, it wasn't forced by the, the coach or the GM. It wasn't forced by the team. It was us doing it because we liked each other. Um, and you, you ever rarely get that kind of symmetry and relationship um, that we had. Do you think it's impossible to win if you're not challenging each other like Draymond does uh, from time to time, pushing the limits a little bit, um, and then figuring out a way to come back and have those dinners and regroup? Or do you think you could, there can be sunshine and rainbows all the way through? <laughs> uh, ever rarely. You need, look, every team needs one crazy guy, and Draymond was our crazy guy. Um, you need a guy that will just come in and MF people and throw shit and <laughs> you know get mad and you know, just do, do crazy stuff. You need that. And he, when you, he'd have, he'd have a day or two a month sometimes where he'd lose his shit at practice. And you just knew that the next day he'd be fine, you know, and, and vice versa. I'd, I'd get into it with him and then I'd be pissed at him for a day or two and then you get over it. You just move on. And I think those, those tests in practice and even just the banter in the locker room, talking smack to each other and something might get a little bit too far past the line. Um, 
once you get into a game and that happens, it doesn't even bother you because you, you're doing it every day. And that was the intensity that Draymond had. And I think teams, you can win with a team of nice guys, but more times than not, you need a few crazy guys on that team. And I mean, we had Draymond, myself, like weren't scared to take hard fouls, talk shit to people. We weren't going to get punked. Um, and, you know, when I first got to the Warriors, we were, we were a team that got pumped, oftenly. Like, there was no, no physical presence there. There was no guy that was saying, no, nah, like, you're not punking us. I'm going to push you back. And then, you know, I get in there and Draymond gets drafted and, and then Andre Iguodala comes in. All of a sudden, we've got guys like, we're going to push you back. <laughs> like, and that's when kind of the thing changed for us. Andrew Bogut versus Draymond Green tussling in practice, throw, throwing hands. Who wins that one? <laughs> my whole thing with, with NBA fights is whoever lands the first punch is usually going to win uh, because <laughs> hey. number one, it's probably going to be a pretty heavy punch because we're pretty big guys. And number two, guys have ran in and then held everyone back. So <laughs> so if you factor back to the, the, the Rajon Rondo, Chris Paul fight back in Staples, like that's what it was. It was like once, once the hands went, it was like, oh, no, I need to get as many as I can in because I'm going to get grabbed in a second. Um, so... I mean, Draymond's a pretty good wrestler. I'm a pretty good wrestler. We got into it a few times, but never actually threw uh, through punches. But um, legit but, wrestling matches, though. Oh yeah, in practice, box outs. <laughs> you know, might have got an O board the possession before, then he gets mad and really boxes me out hard, and then I get mad because he boxed me out hard, and then it becomes that every up, up and down. It's like I'm bowing him, he's bowing me back, and that's that's completely normal. Like most NBA teams, like it just goes that way. So there's a song I'm in love with the Coco. Bring you back every time, or what? I got bands. We don't have to do that. Um, yeah, it does still to this day. Uh, my wife brought it up the other day. It was I don't know who played it or how it started, but we got on a, got on a win streak that year. We won it, and we had injuries. We had different things dealing with, and, and we just kept winning games. Lineup changes, and and then someone played that song, and everyone danced to it. So we. Barbosa's making all these funny noises, and, and guys are doing funny dances to it, and then it just became a thing. Um, until someone in the, you know, social Who media it? wanted to be politically correct and <laughs> it was inappropriate when looking at, listen to any other, any other rap or hip hop song for the most part. I'm in love with the Coco is probably one of the most tamest, <laughs> like <laughs> some of the verses out there, but yeah, we, we got told by, um, by management we couldn't do it anymore. God, everybody's getting soft all the time now. Just, and, yep. and NBA where soft happens, right? That's it at times, yeah. <laughs> it's funny uh, these days, not just the NBA. It's the way we're going. Man. So one thing I feel terrible, you never want a player to be injury riddled throughout his career. I mean, you were able to come back and, I mean, manage pretty successful career after getting injuries early and um, overcoming multiple throughout your career. Uh, do you think injuries in general ever helped you um, held you back from reaching your full potential? Oh, potentially. Um, look, I still played a 14-year NBA career and a 15-year pro career. Played 800 games almost in the NBA. Won a championship. Made an all-NBA third team one year. So, oh, it was a great career, man. Yeah, I had, I had success. And, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of – you don't want to cry over spilled milk because it is what it is. But, yeah, it definitely changed the way I play. You know, people, people only remember me in the Warriors days of being a defensive anchor and a rebounder and a physical guy, like – Watch some tapes from when I played in Milwaukee. Like I was, I was, You're an athlete. I, was block. I was getting buckets down there, and I was yeah. that year I, I messed my elbow up, which really affected the way I shot the ball and affected everything, kind of on the on the right side of my body. Um, I was having a career year. I was, I was, my arrow was going up, and 
I, you know, averaged 16 and 10 and a few blocks that year. And I just felt like everything was kind of coming together. Like it was all piecing together towards me being that number one pick that I, where I was selected. And then it got kind of taken away from me. And it, it took me about, you know, a year or two to recover from that elbow, um, just touch wise. And then thankfully um, Scott Skiles in Milwaukee taught me how to be a defensive anchor and what it takes and what I need to do. And I could bring that then into a team like Golden State that had, you know, if I'm going to Golden State with Steph and Clay there and saying, hey, I want my touches still. Like, look at me offensively. I'll be an idiot. I'll be out of there. <laughs> the next flight, they'll be sending me to wherever. So I bought into my role as a fourth or fifth option as hard as it was to swallow, coming from Milwaukee where I was the number one option. But I was happy to do that and play my role and played a very valuable role and ended up winning the championship from it. So I never would have thought I would have won a championship. When I was, when I was in Milwaukee all those years and we were – it was kind of a turnstile of an organisation. Like, every year we had – eight or nine new players in the roster. We couldn't get any cohesion because it was like kept blowing up the roster and going for home run hits because we're a small market team. It was, I was like, I'm never going to win any championship. Like, this is, you know, going to be impossible. And then to actually get a chance to win one and compete for another one was, was great. Um, I would say, man, first of all, shout out to Scott Skiles. I think he, I think he holds, he might hold the single game record for most assists in a game. I think he had like yeah. 30, 30, in a 30, game? Yeah, 30 was the magic. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Scott Skiles. I was going to say, um, to anyone who really knows the NBA and follows the NBA, I mean, I've been following the NBA since the 90s. It really speaks to the basketball player that you are to reinvent yourself and be successful with it. It's really difficult, I think, for, for a lot of people to like reinvent them, themselves on the fly and to notice how they can have value in other ways. Um, because a lot of guys, I feel like, have been playing their whole lives and they've been playing the way they've been playing, right? So it's, it's difficult. So credit to you for that. Um, but I was also going to ask, man, so what was it like for you going from an organization like Milwaukee that, like you said, it's a turnstile of an organization, or at least it was. Things, things are different nowadays, I guess, with Giannis. Much better from, yeah, they seem to be in good position. Um, but going from what things were in Milwaukee uh, to the situation you, you encountered in Golden State, you know, best, best team of all time, allegedly, right? So what was that like? Well, don't forget, when I, when I first got traded to Milwaukee, Golden State was in a similar situation, if not worse, <laughs> as far as culturally what was going on. It was felt like couldn't get a free agent to even take a meeting to sign there. Um, it was you know, those injuries, a few bad draft picks along the way, and not winning games. I don't know. I think they made the playoffs once the We Believe year. I think it was once out of, what was it, 15, 20 years they'd made it. It was like you had to go back before that to like I think it was Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway days. Yep, you're right. Right. No, no, um, no. They, they made they made the playoffs with Baron Davis in 07. We believe. Maver- right. Yeah. We oh, believe. oh, that was the we believe. Okay, okay. I thought you said I think you said Chris Chris Mullen. No. The yeah, the we believe year was the one time they made it, and then before that, I think was Chris, Chris Mullen and that. Okay. I think okay. it's one time out of the last 20 years they were even in a playoff series, and that was the we believe year. They they just scraped in in eighth spot, and then obviously shocked the world, but. Um, so the organization was kind of didn't know where it was going. And then obviously Joe Laker had just purchased the team that year. They traded Monte for me. Um, and Monte was a fan favorite. So as soon as that happened, like, I get off the plane, like they introduced me, I'm getting booed. Like Joe Laker's getting booed. And what people didn't realize was like the trade for me was good because it brought a defensive anchor and a big fella inside, but it also freed up Steph to be Steph. Like, People, people forget that. Like, if you've got Monte Ellis still there, very talented, super guy, fan favorite, but he's, he's a ball handler. Like, Steph's not, you know, Steph's not getting the double amount of touches all of a sudden. So then it frees mm-hmm. Steph up 
it also gave Steph the confidence of like, hey, the franchise is saying I'm the guy now. And we slowly build that up. But it, it, it was just yeah, interesting to see because we, we definitely, you know, Milwaukee made the playoffs that year. They traded me just. And Golden State, I think we were last or second last um, in, in the West and then ended up drafting Harrison and Festus and Draymond. And then things started to change direction for us. You're also like your arrival freed Steph up. Um, you know, symbolically and on the court, but it, and, and it took the ball out of Monte's hands and into Steph's, but it also physically opened him up because you're the master of setting screens and sliding your hip just enough to cover that thing. Always legal. Yeah, always legal. <laughs> Man, I can't tell you how many Andrew Bogut screens I've seen and just thought, God damn like, it. You know what's crazy, though? Like, so when, I, when we started winning and becoming like a league sweetheart, I could literally like shirt front people. I could like take people out. I know. <laughs> if it was a screen for Steph or Clay, I could, I could clothesline people for the most part and then call one out of 10. <laughs> like, I know. I know. But then I get, tra- I get traded. I get traded from uh, Golden State to Dallas and had like 4,000 the first three minutes of a game. <laughs> Cause they're like, nah, you're with Dallas now, man. Like <laughs> you're not screening for Steph and uh, Clay anymore. I'm like, what the hell? Like, it was like a wake-up call, but I, it was crazy. Like, we – early on, it wasn't like that. But once we started rolling and the feel-good story of the Warriors and Steph's MVP years and Clay and Splash Brothers, like, the league – we the league sweethearts. And I was getting away with some crazy shit. Like, it was, it was great. <laughs> Did history repeat itself? You got met up with Monta Ellis, didn't you? In Dallas? Didn't you meet no, up with Monta? No? I think he was out of the league at that point. Okay. He gone, yeah, he was, he was long gone. He was – yeah, Milwaukee to Dallas, and I think he was there the year before or two years before me. But, um, yeah, no, nah, I didn't. So, outside of that, how else do you think from when you came into the league in 2006 till today, how has it really evolved um, as a product and as a league outside of the relationships and spacing, three-point landing? I mean, how has it evolved in your eyes as a player? Well, on court, it's pretty obvious. The small right. is the way of life now, I think. Um, I think there's still a place for the big man. I just don't think it's um, a goal like myself. I don't think it's 40 minutes a night. I think you need a, you still need a physical rim presence at times. Um, and it's probably more a 20, 25 minute role now than it is a 40. You know, it, it's the game's gone that way. And it's a copycat league. I think the Warriors, us winning that championship with small ball in the finals, everyone's going to copy what the team did the season before that won it. And in the next season, essentially we, we almost won it again. So What's crazy about that is you go back to the Memphis series, they're up 2-1. If they win that series and go to the finals with Zebo at the four and Gasol at the five, yeah. we even talk about small ball. You know, like that's, it is wild. That's the thing with the league. Like it's, it's a copycat league. I don't think it's going to change, though. I think spacing is very important and not having a, um, a brute big. It would be interesting to see if we had another Shaq come through the draft, what would happen. Um, that would be something I really want to see. Like someone that had the dominance of Shaquille O'Neal in college um, that when we see a little bit of it with Zion, but he's not, um, he's not seven foot. And just to see how, how that would all play out, you know, whether you, you, you make him shoot threes or whether you play him 40 minutes post and up. How do you think if, if we were able to pluck Shaq, uh, I forget when he was drafted, 91, 92, if you were able to pluck Shaq and drop him into the league right now, how do you think that would turn out? Oh, he'd, he'd dominate offensively. Like there's, you know, he's, especially with small ball lineups, like you've got, um, say the Lakers put AD at the five, like you've got AD guarding Shaq or, you know, no disrespect to AD, he's a phenomenal player, but a smaller sized mobile f- 
four that's playing a bit of five guarding Shaq's not going to work. But on the flip side is they, they pick and roll Shaq as much as they could and make him, you know, um, get out of the paint. So it'd be interesting to see how that all worked. But I think he'd do fine. He's a Hall of Fame player and you can't disrespect his legacy and what he's done. But uh, teams would definitely try to get him out of that paint as much as they could. But then on the flip side, you've got to go down there and have your, your superstar player in AD or a Draymond Green at the five spot wrestling with Shaquille O'Neal. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a coin flip. Yeah, I think most of the, like, the top 20 all-time players would be good in any era. And I just think the talent exceeds it and they figure it out or adapt. And just the intelligence level you got to get to. Like Shaq's just... I thought I was big man when I got to the league and then I, I was at a jump, in a jump ball with him when he was in Miami still. And I was like, he's, he's not even weight room. He's not even weight room big. He's just a big human being. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm seven foot 260 and I'm like, oh my God, this guy's huge. Wow. I mean, the closest thing outside of Zion's basically Giannis getting all of his points at the rim, majority of them. Yeah. Well, but, hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But as far as like a brute, like I'm going to get it take two dribbles and I'm in the charge circle and turn and dunk it on you. I just, up, boy. It'd be really interesting to see if we had a guy like that come through college again and just to see how, where he's drafted, number one, and number two, how he's played. I mean, in terms of, you know, just big human beings in general, how would you stack a guy like Shaq and your experience playing against them and, and having to bang with them? Um, a guy like Shaq against, like, Yao Ming? Oh, they're both tough. Like, Yao's... The tough thing about Yao was he was pretty big and strong, but he had the touch of the guard. Like he could, there was one game in Houston, he gave me 36 when I was a young fellow, I think it was my second year in the league. And I'm like doing everything right defensively, pushing him off the block, making catches tough. And he just got hot and was shooting fadeaways off over both shoulders. And he's seven, six. And then he's shooting from about eight foot trajectory. It's like, I'm not, I'm not even affecting his shot. The best I could get was a hand, trying to get a hand on his eyes to try and, and cook me, and, and then Shaq's kind of opposite. Um, so Shaq's going to, like, make you feel it. Like, a few times playing against him, he, the crazy thing about Shaq was he, he'd try to hit you, but you could see he wasn't trying to hit you too hard because he knew, like, if he hit you too hard, he's getting, <laughs> like, you're literally going to be hurting and, and you're going to go flying to the front row. But he was just so strong that he like, I'm, I'm just going to hit him a little bit and you just still be, he'd, he'd create, you know, two feet of space for himself. Like, he was that strong and it was just like, like man... You can't front the dude because he's so wide and kind of like a big girth about him. So you couldn't front him because if you get stuck on one side, they're throwing it to the other arm. It's a drop-step dunk. So you get stuck playing behind. And all you hope is that night his touch isn't there and he's missing those three-foot hook shots because if, if he's not, you're in some trouble. I'm in pain just thinking about it, man. <laughs> <I'm Yeah. hurt. laughs> so thinking back from where you were at the beginning of your career, um, was it always a goal to end up in Australia when you were done and finish your career there like you did? It wasn't a goal once I was in the NBA. I think as a young fella it was. I always wanted to play in the NBL. Um, and then I thought once I got to the NBA, that, that probably wouldn't happen. But with some off-court issues, my wife had a high-risk pregnancy at the time. I'd been kind of shuffled around a few different teams and moving and then just had a newborn baby and my wife was pregnant. So just made sense for us to chill out for a year or two and that's where the NBL just fit in perfectly and it was still still a very high quality competitive league where I could still stay in good shape and, and be sharp and my goal was to try and get to 2020 Tokyo Olympics but that all um, that all changed obviously the last six months of being postponed but um, I 
that was my plan once I was in the NBA, but it ended up working out very well. So with that said, I mean, yeah, it sounds like you had a good two years. It was fun playing basketball and whatnot, but difference from the NBL and the NBA, I mean, the NBA is a 10. Talk to a lot of guys in a lot of different leagues. What would you say on a scale of 1 to 10 where the NBL lies and where are the major differences outside of the obvious? Well, competition-wise, if the NBA is a 10, I'd be around a 7, seven maybe a 7.5. It's, it's a competitive good. league. I think it's one of the best leagues outside of the NBA. I think you've got the Euro League, which is obviously the equivalent of a Champions League in soccer. So that's all the best teams, two or three of the best from each country. So you have the Euro League above it. Um, you might have the top three or four teams in Spain above it. But as far as the league goes, I think it's top five in the world for sure. Um, and it's competitive. It's quirky. Some of the coaches do some unique things. Um, it's, it is FIBA rules. So zone defense is allowed. Um, you take the ball off the rim once it hits the rim. So there's a few different things like that. But for the most part, it's, it's basketball at the end of the day. Um, and it's... I guess the difference is mainly the defensive three seconds where you can't really clog up the paint as much in the NBA, but um, it's, it's, it's a competitive league and there's only nine teams. So there's not a lot of roster spots. So it makes the, it makes those roster, the players even better that are playing and the roster spots even harder to get. Man. Andrew, um, growing up, man, when you were hooping, like who were some of the people you grew up looking up to in terms of basketball and who's in your GOAT discussion? Uh, for me, I really like Tony Kuko just because I'm from Croatian background, descent. My fam- whole family's from there. And I was probably skinnier than Tony was when Tony was young. So it just kind of was like, oh, that guy's Croatian. I'm descent. Same kind of body, like all wiry and just all over the place and, and could handle the ball. So I kind of liked him a lot. Um, obviously, Tim Duncan, KG, those guys were the premier big men when I was coming through in Shaq. So I like mixes of, of their games. Um, but, yeah, a mix of people. But I think the GOAT discussion – I think it's the GOAT discussion to me, like when people get rolled up on, on the internet, like the Kobe versus um, Jordan or LeBron versus Kobe or LeBron versus Jordan, it's just such a stupid argument in my opinion because it's like – it's hard to compare eras. It's hard to compare – like these days you can't touch anyone. It's a free throws, right? So when MJ played, like it was – dudes were getting clotheslined and like – hand checking was allowed at times whereas now if a guy turns and faces you can't even have a hand on him so you know then you go to the 60s and 70s these dudes are running around in high tops that were made from paper essentially you know so there's, there's just so many different factors um, from different eras I just think it's it's somewhat disrespectful to compare eras and this guy's better than this guy because you just don't know like you said earlier like great players will adapt in different eras but at the same time we don't know like we'll dominated the era back then but if he's gone against a Shaq every night or a Yao who knows you know what I mean I'm not taking away his greatness there but or vice versa you know like where eras where shooting is really important can non-shooting guys adapt so I mean obviously Kobe LeBron Shaq Jordan all those guys they're they're in the GOAT discussion um, but I just hate kind of comparing eras because I don't think there's too many things that factor into it to, to that end what's your favorite era um for me it's the 90s just because I grew up that's where I grew up, falling in love with basketball. Um, and not even somewhat, but it wasn't even that. It was just, it was part of my childhood. So, like, yeah. it just triggers me to when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. In Australia, we'd have one game of a week. They'd have the game of the week on a Saturday morning, and it'd be a one-hour condensed game. They'd cut down a game into one hour, 
and then you'd have NBA action on a Sunday morning at like 10.30. And that's all the NBA basketball we got. So for me, it was like waiting that whole week in school. I'd record it on VHS and then watch it that whole, that whole Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday till the next episode came out. And then I'd take that one. And it was just a great part of my adolescence and childhood. So I just love it. You know, like you said, big man battle, Shaq versus Alonzo when he was in, in Charlotte, you know, um, kill crossover, Tim Hardaway. Like it's just a great era of basketball to me and one I really enjoyed. That makes three of us, man. We're, we're both in love with the 90s. and all probably uh, the same age. <laughs> yeah, yeah probably, I mean, you're all, I'm 30, you're 36. I mean, we're right there, same generation 30, for sure. 31 over here. There you go. Yeah, we're pretty close. So last question for you, Andrew. With the season coming up here, I know I was listening to your podcast. You're still pretty inclined with the game. You take a strong interest in it. What are you looking forward to in this NBA season? What are some storylines that are sticking out to you? I'm interested to see, obviously, the elephant in the room with Houston, with James, and where, where he ends up. Um, the rumors of him going to Brooklyn, I, I want to see that. Cause you want to see Brooklyn? Only for this reason. Cause, Circus. Yeah, it's just going to be hilarious. Because you, you essentially have to put KD or Kyrie or James. Two of those guys per possession are going to be role plays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be like, hey, KD, like, go stand in the corner, and if you're open, I'll throw it to you and you shoot it, or vice versa, right? So you're like, over the course of a year, like, I'm trying to figure out how, how is that going to work? Like Steve Nash, I think Steve Nash either gets coach of the year or he gets fired. Like, I think there's nothing in between. <laughs> like, so I think it's one think of those. Too much talent, and it would exceed the fit in my estimation. It's just, they're all just like a Golden State. But they're all they're all – they're all so good at scoring the ball. Right. One so it's like, you got three of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. You got three of them. Like you, I don't, I don't think you need three. So I, I kind of want that to happen just to get some popcorn and watch the, oh, watch the <laughs> but um, we just see what, you know, I think Philly will be much better with doc um, changing some things up, different roster and just the fresh, I think Brett, I think Brett did a great job there to be honest with you um, with what he was dealt. But I think doc might just bring a, a fresh, fresh take on things. Looking forward to that. Um, the one I'm really looking forward to seeing is how the Clippers bounce back. Um, I spoke about that on my podcast. I think they there was a lot of turmoil there with the old guys and the, the new guys that they signed. Obviously, some chemistry issues, which had been spoken about. So you, you'd hope a, a veteran on that team, like a Beverly or a Paul George or a Kawhi, do the Golden State thing where, hey, we're having team dinners, we're getting together, we're getting to know each other. I think that if they do that, they have a huge chance of getting to the conference finals. But the Lakers, to me, one of the best retoolings by a championship team I've seen in a long time. They, they retooled really well for a championship team. Generally, they you know have a have an issue with salary cap because they're they got LeBron and AD. They don't have a lot of room financially. They picked up some great players this off season, um, so I think they have a they have a very good chance to repeat. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I just got one more question uh, before we get you out of here. If <laughs> in a new world when all this stuff goes away, if I was to visit Australia, where would you tell me to go? What would you point me – what type of food would you point me to eat and what type of shit should I do or see? Oh, it depends. It's two, twofold. Um, you coming by yourself or with your family or with the boys? Uh, <laughs> let's say I'm going with the boys. Um, look, the east coast of Australia, everything is within a two-hour flight and you've got – a city like Melbourne, which is New York equivalent. You've got Sydney, which is more San Francisco. 
Then you've got the Gold Coast, which would be Miami Beach. Um, so that's all within flight. So I'd go on the East Coast. And then you know, if you want to party, you come up to the Gold Coast, Sydney, Melbourne party well. Melbourne's like a cafe culture, restaurant scene, unbelievable food. I mean, we're very multicultural, especially in Melbourne. So you can try any nationality, any cultural food you want to find, you'll find there, much like New York City. So if you want to do that. But I'd stay on the East Coast, just get a, you know, get a couple of flights, fly in, fly out. Um, you have a good time. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of beautiful things to do here, especially this time of the year. It's we're the opposite to you guys. So we're, we're sunny and beautiful outside. So, wow. Andrew, my 21st birthday um, up on the northwest, I jumped out of a plane. I skydived over the Great Barrier Reef, got out of that plane, took some goodies, and had myself a day. Then I scuba di- then I scuba dived the Great Barrier the next day. Oh, it's a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, only thing I don't like about going too far north is uh, <laughs> there's some big ass snakes and, cro- and crocodiles up there and spiders. So I try to try to go there sparingly and um, go there in the winter when it's a bit more chill. That is what scares me, man. I've seen some videos of some spiders that look like they're the size of my damn face, and I can't handle that straight they're up. You know, I mean, you Americans get confused some. Sometimes thinking that we just walk out of our door and there's kangaroos hopping by and spiders <laughs> and snakes and we navigate through all that stuff to get to work. But um, it's more if you go rural or country um, where there's not, not much building or infrastructure, you want to you want to keep your eyes open. But in the city, no one's ever getting bitten by a snake in the city. Very well, good, good well, know, Andrew. Man. We really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on our show. Couple last things. Good luck with that podcast. Looking yeah. forward to seeing it grow. Enjoy retirement. Take some time to yourself. Enjoy it. Take it in. And please get Ben Simmons on that Australian team. He needs to play. Start a petition, man. Start a petition. Oh, <laughs> need on, thank you it. I Appreciate need to. Thank right, you so much, care. Andrew. Take Bye, care. guys. Have fun. Cheers. Bye. Amp set.